We are in a continuing study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. If you've been with us for a while, you know that. We are actually, we've come up to chapters eight and nine, and we read the first five verses uh, a number of weeks ago, just kind of whet our appetite for what that's going to look like. And when we read that, I think that uh, you, along with me, you read that and just think, how is that even possible that, uh, that people can do that? And so my desire was to kind of set the set a foundation to kind of help us understand how we get from perhaps where we are now to the type of giving that Paul thought was so important and significant and such a movement of the Holy Spirit inside the church that he then really kind of captured it in a picture frame and it became the example of what New Testament giving is supposed to look like. And so we're kind of in the middle of that that structure that helps set the foundation. And so I want you to turn. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. So if you'd look there, that'd be great. Genesis chapter 2 is going to be our first stop. We're going to be in a lot of passages today. Some of them will be on the screen. Some of them will not. And so have your Bibles or your tablets handy so you can skip around. Those with tablets definitely have the advantage today in Bible drill uh, to to make that happen quickly. So... Uh, special thanks, of course, to uh, Daniel Gillette for bringing the message a couple Sundays ago. Uh, our family was on a planned camping trip, and uh, Daniel was um, going to cover, and then we didn't go because it, it rained practically every minute of that entire week, and I think we had about six inches of rain. So we didn't go. We figured we could sit in the camper and watch TV or uh, videos, or we could sit at home, watch videos, and it's more comfortable at home. So we did that. And then last week, we had Father's Day, and we talked about love, and uh, really, I hope you were able to start to put that in practice, dads, uh, because you have really changed the whole scope of, of your ministry to your wife and your children as you put on those types of attributes. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. I'd like you to turn there if you would. A number of years ago, a Chicago radio station, WKOX, asked this question, quote, what would you do for $10,000? That was the question. And when I read this, you're not going to believe this is an actual true story, but you can look it up. It's true. Um, that attracted more than 6,000 responses, 6,000 full-tilt certifiable nut jobs, I mean, I think. The eventual winner was a guy named Jay Gwaltney of Zionsville, Indiana, who, for $10,000, consumed an 11-foot birch sapling, leaves, roots, bark, and all. For the event, he donned a tux and dined at a table set elegantly with china and candles and a rose vase. Armed with pruning shears, the Indiana State University sophomore began chomping from the top of the tree and worked his way branch by branch to the roots. His only condiment, French dressing for the massive birch leaf salad. The culinary feat took 18 hours over a period of three days. When it was all over, Gwaltney complained of an upset stomach. Evidently, the bark was worse than his bite. Dad joke one week out. Dad joke plus one Sunday. I, but as I think about that story, I, I'm not sure that the tree didn't have a higher IQ than Mr. Gwaltney. But we're continuing to build on a foundation of things that we've learned for an understanding of the New Testament standard for giving that we see Second Corinthians 8 and 9, which has to do with managing material things. And we, ha we see some general ways that wealth is acquired, and we've looked at those already as we've begun to set the stage and some foundation for us. Uh, God has made a very rich world, and we've, uh, we've just kind of took on a worldview 
of material things, and I've just kind of explained it to you overall how the Bible explains this. Not hard to grasp. It certainly runs against the culture and everything that they shout about all the things that have to do with the material world and the things that aren't important are most important to them and things that are most important aren't. So it's, it's, it, the world is a kingdom that's completely messed up. But the fact of the matter is God's made a very rich world. He has given men oversight of this material world. And and by his hand, we've seen that he, he disperses the wealth of this world in varying degrees. He disperses it by his sovereignty. If he owns everything and all of its fullness of the world belong to him, then anything that we have, that's a very easy step to take. Then anything we have belongs to him and is a stewardship. There's no, you can't really argue with that. If the Lord says the world is mine and everything in it, that pretty much takes up everything that's in our scope of understanding. So we saw that we are to recognize that he's the source of it. We've seen multiple scriptures that talk about that. Enjoy what he provides. First uh, Timothy 6 is very clear about that. A number of other places too, not not hidden and give him glory and express thankfulness to him through obedience. And we're not to, we saw just very generally, misuse it by indulgence. We're not to misuse it by self-centeredness and prideful arrogance. And as we saw last time we were in this study before Father's Day, there's, there's this overriding principle of sharing. We, we are to be generous. We're to be sacrificial in sharing what we have with others. And, and we saw, as we saw, that was the reason that the Lord established the tithe, which we know was required giving in the Old Testament. I gave you a lot of scriptures with that. So if you've missed any of that, I, could, I encourage you to go on Spotify, check out uh, the YouTube channel, and you, you can catch up. There's a lot of scriptures connected with that. But we know that was required giving uh, for Israel. People say, well, I'm going to give a tithe because that's what Israel did. Well, a tithe just means tenth, but Israel never just gave ten percent. They gave about twenty-three and a third percent if you calculate it all up, and I gave you all that background. And And they were reminded, though, the Lord gave that to them, and they were reminded that they were to do that uh, to remember that it was the Lord who disperses all the wealth. It was all his. And when they did those celebrations and they took that tithe with them to the festivals, that expressed to the Lord their thankfulness and a recognition that everything they had belongs to him. Now, the word of God has a lot to say about specific ways that wealth is given to us by the Lord. And that's really our topic today. So it's, it's biblical views of acquiring and using wealth. And it's kind of the subtitle is just spiritual instructions for a material world. So there are ways the Lord gives things to you, and we're going to look at that today. And and now that we know who owns it all, ways that the word, if you will, actually endorses where God is clear about how material things come. So in order to keep track of the progress, just so that you know where we're going to be, we're going to start with the main ways taught in the Bible, and then we're going to move on to some minor ways that we see in the scriptures, that have the way the Lord disperses wealth, and, and then go over some ways that you can receive material things that the Lord forbids. And so that's a kind of our general outline for today if we get all the way through this. And, and we will look at then after that, wealth in my family. So if we know how the Lord does this, and we know where it all comes from, and you know the general attitudes that are supposed to be brought to bear on it, then so how do I work that out of my family if that's not what my family looks like or if we're having some troubles in some area? So I'm going to move on to that. It's going to deal with, with what you can do to get yourself on the right course. Because if we're going to teach the direction that we should go, we're not on the right course. How do we how do we merge that our own tangent back into the line the Lord wants us to be on? So uh, I think the scripture is very clear about that. So we'll do that, and so kind of that will really be consolidating everything that we've learned up until that point, and then putting in some practical ways that you can make some steps to kind of align with what the Lord has in mind for you, uh, with what He's given, and that will naturally then, as we do that. 
That's going to take us back then to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is going to give us the New Testament model of giving, which, if you understand all the things that we see from the scriptures, you'll be able to see how that's possible. And so that's, that's my, that was my thinking, and so that's kind of where we're going to be, and you can kind of track along with us if that's helpful to you. And I think that we'll be able to understand in total, if you will, a biblical perspective of material things coupled with the model for giving. And, and as these things mesh together and you apply them in your life, you're going to be able to experience God's blessing in this very important area. Now, I'd like to start with the foremost way that Scripture prescribes for the attaining of material things. And this will not be in order of popularity. Okay, We're going to start with the first one, the main one, which is work. Now, you wouldn't know that as you watch the TV. Okay, because it's pretty hard to riot if you have to go to work the next day. But work is the main way that God provides what we have. More than 160 times in the New Testament alone, work is referred to as the disposition of God's people. Now, let's start with the Old Testament, though, and kind of work our way to the New Testament, where God has given us an example for us to follow. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, look there, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. And you're going to pick up some things here right away as the Lord begins to do what he does on earth, that becomes an example for us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Verse 2, see where we are? By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. In verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he, in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. Now, three times in relating to the creative narrative, God worked. And then he gave Adam some chores. Now look, keep reading in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, I'm sure you've done some yard work over the time that you were that you were sequestered. That sounds like work to me. I don't know how about you. And of course, we're on the backside of the fall. But that sounds like work to me. And the work was pretty hard. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, look there if you would. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So you could sure use a helper if you have work to do, right? Especially if it's hard work. And then after the saddest day in all of the history of mankind, the fall, look at verse chapter 3, verse 17. So God had already established that he was going, he worked to establish what we see. And then he gave Adam a job to do. And then he gave Adam a helper for that job. And then look at chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. If you pulled weeds this week in your garden, you know who to blame. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, there was work before, even in the perfect creation. Even when everything was exactly like it should be, the Lord had designed it like he wanted it, and had put people on it, and then he, he gave Adam and then Eve work to do, and so in the perfect creation, God wanted his creation to work and care for what he'd worked and made. And then after the fall, 
there was a lot more work. And the work has been frustrated, as you can see. Uh, its outcome is reduced. The ground produces what it was supposed to produce, and it produces a lot of stuff it wasn't supposed to produce. And so why is that? Well, part of the curse of sin. But we can still say that work is God's will, and principle number one, as it relates to work, and I'm just going to give you principles as we go through these ways that God gives wealth to people. God gave us the example three times, as he says, as he made everything, he worked. And he gave us the example, and we are to follow that example. And, and as I said before, I think this is going to really mesh well with maybe, if you've been watching what's going on in our culture, I think you're going to have a better idea of why it's going on. But I, as I said at the beginning, it's hard to riot when you have to work. And when you're stealing and when you're pulling down the work of others' hands, that does not qualify as righteous anger or justice in any kind of way, shape, or form. That qualifies as sinfulness, and those people qualify as the sons and daughters of Belial. So let's just be clear. Don't buy into the rhetoric. Don't buy into the, the wording. Okay, this is, this is a concerted effort on behalf of those who just want to wreck anarchy. But the Bible condemns it outright. And so as a believer, you can't join in on that side. There may be some things that need to be done. But the fact of the matter is, uh, those who participate in that, and I don't doubt looking at the crowds and watching people walk along, there are probably some very misinformed and infantile believers walking along in that group and participating in things they should not participate in. And I'm just being frank with you, okay? Because you're not going to find a biblical example of that. What you'll see is that condemned outright. I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable, but if it does, I'm just saying a biblical worldview may do that if you don't have a biblical worldview of the culture. So there's gain by work, and the work God described goes hand in hand with gain or to get gain. And the best way, I think, to still look at work is that it's this. It is God's gift to us. We resemble him when we work because he gave us that example. And we work hard and produce something and do something. And I think you can see this even in the creativeness that you bring and demonstrate in work just reveals that you're made in his image. And as you do your job and you bring your creative uh, abilities to it, you just show that you're one of God's creation, aren't you? Because that's precisely what he did when he did his work. And so that's a marvelous thing to see. Don't miss that as you think about going to work every day and perhaps you're doing the same thing and you doesn't seem like it matters. It matters. The Lord has given work for you to do and there's a lot of benefit that comes from it. And when you look in the mirror and you see that you're doing it and you bring your creative nature to it and your hard work, realize you're in his image and doing precisely what he wants you to do. Okay? And so it's very important and we're going to see this is all over the scripture. And this we'll spend most of our time here just because it's so important to grasp this. And, and the Old Testament is really full of instructions in this area, especially Proverbs. And, there, and in, even in Proverbs, there are way too many examples for us to look at them. We would be several weeks just in Proverbs, but we're just going to take a very thin sampling, if you will. So turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. And then I'll move forward and give you a chance to keep flipping through Proverbs. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to stay with me if you want to read them, and I would encourage you to do that and even mark them. As in relation to work, these things are very, very important to grasp, and the principles here are very important. So verse 9 says this, chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, um, Honor the Lord with from your wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce, verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, beloved, you, you will have to work in order to have any of that, okay? So... That's going to come, and it's directly related to what we looked at before in Genesis, right, where the Lord gave them a land and told them they were going to have to work the land, and from the land they would have gain, and they would dig 
the copper and iron from the mountains and they would, they would have craftsmen and all that kind of thing. And when they worked hard, things would be, there would be plentiful, right? And lots of food to eat and, and they wouldn't lack anything. The Lord was very clear about work and it's, and, and what you get back from work, which is the sustenance for your life. So this is not uh, drawing, going against anything we just said. It just kind of sums up and it is implied understanding that work is going to have to be there for you to have anything. And you're going to have to be diligent to produce anything that you can produce from the land or from mining or from any endeavor. Now look at verse 13, Proverbs 3. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. Verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. Verse 20, by his knowledge the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Now you can see that connection, can't you? It kind of summed up what we just got through looking at. Just a moment ago, we saw that the founding of the earth and the establishing of the heavens and the breaking up of the deeps and the making the systems of the world were all part of God's what? That was God's work. Three times we saw in Genesis 3, or Genesis 2, that God worked and did all those things. So if he worked and did all those things, and it says that in order for him to do that, he had, what, knowledge and he had wisdom, then it's very important for us to grasp this. As it relates to work, God's plan is that we are to work diligently, and in diligence, we show that we have wisdom, we show that we have knowledge. When we produce something, we show that we're considering that this is the way the Lord has, has proposed for us and has directed us to live. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he has a lot of negative things to say about an absence of diligence. And he uses things that he's made as illustrations of what to avoid. And you'll see this in Proverbs 6. Go forward, if you would, just three chapters. Proverbs 6, verse 6. And I'll have some of the verse up here, but you can read all of it with me. Proverbs 6, verse 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Now, that's not a great way to start for someone who isn't working hard, but that's how the Bible describes it. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. So two different creatures there referred to, the slug and the ant. Which, verse 7, having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. What's that sound like? That sounds like work. There's going to be work involved in all of those things. Okay. Verse 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come on you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. And when I read verse 10 of chapter 6, I remind my dad would come in on Saturday morning, 6 in the morning, when all good teenagers should be sleeping, and quote that verse to me. Now, he was misquoting that verse because I planned on getting up and working hard. My dad saw to that every day of my childhood that I got to work and work with him and learn things. But So don't think it doesn't mean you can't take a nap, okay? And if you go home on Sunday and take a nap, that's perfectly fine. It's not talking about you, all right? You got to have some rest to recover and, and, you know, regular sleeping. But this is just, you know, spending your life napping away, spending your life doing nothing. You know, you're tired because you did nothing all day and then you're, you're taking your late afternoon, you know, snooze. But uh, principle three as it relates to work. The unwillingness to work hard 
can lead to a loss of jobs or can create a continuous shortfall. That's the whole idea there. If you're not being diligent about this and you don't realize that you need to work hard in order to have what you need and you need to do it at the right time so that the Lord can provide through those things your needs, then you're going to have a continuous shortfall or perhaps a continuous loss of job. You're going from one place to another because you don't work hard and people aren't going to keep you. Just working our way through, look at Proverbs 13, verse 4, if you would. Proverbs 13, verse 4. Skip up just a little bit. Seven verse chapters. And this just echoes what we just saw. And again, I'm just giving you the high points here. We could go all over the place. Just in Proverbs, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. So the one who does what we just looked at in Proverbs 6 will have a lot of cravings and a lot of desires and maybe want a lot of things, but they won't have anything. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. What's that mean? Just somebody who works hard, there'll be what you need in order to provide for your needs at whatever level the Lord has decided to provide. And look at verse 11, if you would, same chapter. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increasing it increases it. Principle number four as it relates to work, lying or misrepresenting something in order to be enriched or stealing it or whatever it is, that's not work and God doesn't bless that effort. You can get something that way, but the Lord says that will dwindle. You get it by fraud, you get it by stealing, you get it by misrepresenting something, you get it by lying, you get it by... Uh, robbing someone, that's going to dwindle. That's not a way the Lord has provided, but we'll look at those specifically later. But there are some very negative things relating to those who won't work hard. Lots of others. Look at Proverbs 14, 23. I'm just kind of going to go through a few of them. Proverbs 14, 15, 18, 19, and 20. So we're just going to kind of work through there. And I'll just read them and you can, you can jot them down if you like. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all labor there is profit. So working hard at whatever it is that you do, or whatever job is at hand brings some profit to it. Some more, some less. But it's the, re- the less rest of the verse is this, but mere talk only leads to poverty. So if you're just talking about working hard and just talking about a plan that you have, but you're not doing it, you're going to find yourself without what you need. Proverbs 15, verse 6, Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is the income of the wicked. Proverbs 18, 9, He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Someone who doesn't work hard is very similar to somebody who tears things down. So not a great company to be in. Proverbs 19, verse 15. Laziness casts into deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Just very clear. You're not working. You're lazy. You're not going to have what you need. Over and over again. I'm only getting one out of every ten verses that we could look at. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13. You could turn to Proverbs 24 if you want to. Proverbs 20, verse 13. Do not love sleep or you'll become poor. Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with food. You can see that this laziness is an issue, a major issue in the Old Testament. And the Lord talks about it constantly. Why? Because it is the nature of people to be lazy, isn't it? And if you have children, you know that you have to train them not to be lazy. Every single one of them all the time when they're being formed. And as they grow, you're teaching them how not to be lazy. And, and you do it in kindness, and you do it by example. 
Because if you're being lazy all the time, don't expect your children to do anything differently than you. But if you're a hard worker, your children have to learn how to do that. And you have to form them and teach them. And then, as I did with my boys as they grew up, okay, well, that's you did a, you did an okay job, but not the job that dad asked you to do. So we're going to go back and do it again. And we're going to do it very well this time. And remember, you're always working for Jesus. You're, you're not just working for dad. You're working for Jesus. So you're doing the best job you can do no matter what it is. If you're sweeping out the garage, if you're raking up leaves, or if you're up on the roof helping me, we're going to do the best job we can do. We're going to work hard. And so that's not being unkind, beloved, to your kids. That's being a, a responsible parent and teaching them a biblical view of how to obtain things. And even when I began to pay them for jobs, which we do we did pretty often as they got older. If they did a lazy job or, or, and they were just working piecework, so in other words, uh, dad will give you 50 bucks for raking the whole yard, but it's taken forever, or they didn't rake it very well, you're going to go back and that won't be paid. You're going to redo that until we get it. And th that's not being cruel. That's just being, that's being kind and also teaching how that's supposed to happen. So very important, uh, it, very important issues here that are connected to laziness because it's a major issue in the word of God. Now look at Proverbs 24, verse 3, if you would. That's where we're going to get our next, our next uh, principle, principle number 5. And if you're keeping, keeping notes on the back of your bulletin, this is number 5. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it's established. So now we go back to the Lord created everything on the earth, and he had wisdom and knowledge that he brought to bear on it. So you're going to have to have wisdom and knowledge to bear as you work hard, because that's how a house is established. And... and uh, by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So the fact of the matter is, you're going to have to bring wisdom to bear as you work hard, and the Lord provides what you need through those labor efforts. So as it relates to work, hard work is connected to wisdom, and it's connected to understanding. If you're going to have some things the Lord may desire for you to have, it's going to be connected to wisdom and going to be connected to understanding. As you work hard, you understand what the Lord has said for us to do, and you begin to apply that. That's understanding, isn't it? And, and that's wisdom to know that the Lord is right, and to follow what he says is to put that wisdom into practice. Now look at Proverbs 24, verse 30. Would you look there? Just skip uh, over to verse 30, same chapter. And don't, uh, I'll get to Malachi in just a minute. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30. Let's look at the, at the rest of this. And as we read this, I want you to think about some of our inner cities. Okay, and we're going to get to some of the reasons why they look like they do, perhaps. Uh, but I want you to think about what you see as the cameras go through the inner cities. And, and then I want you to read this. And, and here's a very great observation. Okay, I pass by the field of the slugger. Again, using something the Lord's created that doesn't move very fast and doesn't seem to accomplish much except eat your strawberries when you don't want them to. But you pass by the field of the sluggard and, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. So no wisdom to bring to bear, no knowledge is at work here. And behold, verse 31, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Now, some of that's the curse, right? Because that's what's going to come up uh, more quickly than the grass, right? You're going to see, and you know, if you mow your, you mow your yard, the, the weeds are already you know, 10 inches tall, the grass is only 4 inches tall. That's kind of how, that's part of the curse. So we understand that. But because there's laziness there, that's what you see. So the surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Look at verse 32. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. So there was some instruction there gained by going and seeing somebody or people who are lazy, people who don't work. Okay? Now, verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber. See, we see this again. A little folding of your hands to rest, and then your poverty will come on you as a robber. Uninvited, of course, but should be expected. If you're not working hard, you're going to have poverty. And your want, 
like an armed man. It's going to come up quickly and you're going to realize you're powerless because you haven't done what you needed to do. And that's just, beloved, that's a very small sampling. And we'll look at a few more. And But Scripture has a lot to say about saving and lending, and we'll talk about that later. But about work, we can make several observations. Number one, work's God's gift for you. Now, it may not seem like that. And when you get up early in the morning and you're going in and doing your thing, that might not seem like a gift, but it is. And in fact, Adam and Eve worked in the garden when everything was perfect. So don't think somehow, uh, you know, this is just part of the curse I have to work. The Lord had planned in his perfect creation that his creatures would care for what he'd made. And I think that's an important point to, to, to ponder. And number two, work hard. It's equated with wisdom in the Old Testament all over the place. Working hard will provide self-respect. When you're doing what you're supposed to do, there's satisfaction in a hard day's work, isn't there? Even if it doesn't seem like perhaps when you work, and maybe you're in a big corporation and the little thing that you do doesn't seem like it makes a big difference. But when you're doing it and you come home and you've applied yourself diligently, there is a feeling of self-satisfaction. That's not a bad thing. You know, that's what the Lord put in your heart to confirm that you're doing precisely what you're supposed to do, working hard. Okay? Working hard will provide self-respect. Working hard will bring productivity. There's always some profit back from working hard. And so you have to put the time in if you're going to see the results. Working hard will allow you to use your human talents and giftedness in a way that glorifies God. In fact, your giftedness and your human talents indicate that you are one of his. And it makes it really clear that uh, you are made in his image and you're bringing that gift and talent to, to that workplace. Working hard keeps you from idleness. It keeps you from wasting time and the temptation which can lead to sinful behaviors. Uh, today's protest culture, we see that. And we're going to see more about that very clearly in just a minute. And the absence of working hard uh, can lead to financial trouble. Many, uh, but not all, but many are in financial trouble because they don't know how or won't work hard, or they spend unwisely, or they refuse to give and to share. So there's a lot of other things that can be a factor there, and we'll look at them. But certainly this one plays a very important role, and we just saw 10 verses easy that say the very same thing. Now hold your place here in Proverbs and turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Hold your, hold your finger here because we'll be back and it'll be easier to get there. Turn to Malachi 3. That's the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi 3, verse 8. I'm sorry, this is how my mind works. Um, you probably don't want to know that. Verse 8. Will a man rob God? That's the question. And of course it's rhetorical. What should the answer be? Uh, no, we shouldn't, but will you? Perhaps. And then he says, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now, remember, tithes we've already talked about. That's required giving in the Old Testament, 23 and a third percent, used for the festival days, used to take care of the priest, used to take care of the poor. Okay, so you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Now, offerings is something different, and we're going to look at that as we move in farther into our study. Offerings are what we're talking about in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and there's a difference between the two. And there's examples of offerings in the Old Testament, and we'll look at that as well. But so tithes and offerings, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Verse 9, you're cursed with a curse for that you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So again, we see precisely what we saw last time where the Lord established the principles by which they could stay in the land and the hard work that was supposed to be there and the sharing that was supposed to be done. And then we fast forwarded 400 years later and we saw what they were doing. What were they were doing? They were selfishly taking everything and keeping it. They were misusing the poor. They were, they were, you know, hoarding everything and living in uh, fancy houses, which there's nothing wrong with that, but they weren't taking care of those who were supposed to take care of and they weren't doing their tithing and all the stuff that they were supposed to do. So, so we see that there's, there's connected 
punishment on those who don't manage what the Lord has given the way that they should. And this is, it's again here. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. And see, that makes no sense in the New Testament model, does it? Bring the, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and maybe food in my house. But it makes perfect sense in the Old Testament because part of what was supposed to be given was specifically to take care of those who ministered before the Lord because they didn't have any land. They just had cities. And the Lord said part of that was supposed to be to the Levite. Now, we don't have Levites now. We don't have to take care of that kind of thing. So this doesn't apply. But you can see here, they're in trouble. They're using what the Lord has given to be used for something else. It didn't belong to them at all. None of it did. But they're using some of what the Lord has given to be used for those tithes. And we're going to see offerings. And they're just consuming the whole thing. And so the Lord says, listen, you don't, you don't have abundance. You don't have anything. You're under a curse. So he says, bring, bring the whole tithe into my storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, which is precisely what he said he was going to do if they managed what he'd given them correctly. They'd have more than enough, abundantly more than enough, and have everything they needed to live. So this perfectly meshes with what we looked at before. Verse 11. Then I will, I will, so we're getting in some of the cursing that's going on here. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. In other words, dropping grapes before you can harvest them, things that go wrong with vines, things that go wrong in an agrarian society. But certainly it applies much more broadly that you're just not producing the things you could produce and all your labor seems to be just spinning, right? And, and just dust devils everywhere. You're not, you're not accomplishing anything and you're not bringing anything in. It just seems like every, every effort is, is wasted. The Lord says that won't be how it is anymore. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. I'll rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine be ca- uh, vine in the field cast its grapes before the time, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts, which is the land they did inherit. A delightful land. The best land there was, the Lord gave it to his people. That's the generosity and kindness of God. It was already a wonderful land, but they had messed it up, haven't they? Because of the way they managed what the Lord had given them. He says, look, I can change the whole thing. You're the only one interfering with the picture that I had for you and the plan I had for you, he tells his people. So again, that tithe had to do with required giving of festivals, the poor, the Levite. We looked at that. We'll look at offerings later. So we'll just set that on the table on the side. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and this is an interesting passage. It goes along with what we just looked at a little bit ago. But Ephesians 4, 28 says this, He who steals must steal no longer. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. He must labor. He must not steal. Present, active, imperative in both of those. So if you want to know if the Lord is serious about something, you look for those reforms, and those reforms are very clear. If you're stealing, you don't do it anymore. And if uh, you're not laboring, you should be laboring. And when you labor... You perform with your own hands those things that are good. The Lord blesses labor. He's designed us to work. And the benefit from that is the last part of the verse, so that, what? He will have something to share with one who has need. Will his own needs be met? Of course it will. If you have enough to share, you've got all that you need, and whatever level that is. And I'm talking about prosperity theology, where the Lord has designed everybody to be super wealthy and never have any health problems, okay? As some of these preachers say when they, as they look through their own glasses at the passage. 
I mean, that's difficult for me to manage. If the Lord wants everybody healthy and wealthy, and then you got to have glasses and contacts, well, then there's a problem, all right? Right? I mean, let's just be real. But he who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what's good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has needs. So principle number six, as it relates to work, and you see it up there, hard work provides for your needs, and it gives you something to share, which is precisely what the Lord has designed for us to do. So there's a direct connection to the commands of God to share. Proverbs 28, verse 19, and you can turn back there if you'd like, and then I'm going to have you in Second Thessalonians. So you're going to be all over, So, uh, but that's a good thing. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. There's two opposite ends. You work hard, and again, just using an agrarian type illustration, you know, till your land, you can have plenty of food. You follow empty pursuits, you can have poverty and plenty. You're just thinking about and planning about doing something. You're not doing anything, any kind of hard work. And that really applies very broadly to just about every endeavor. You work hard at it, you're going to have what you need. But if you follow just empty plans and just maybe this will work, maybe it won't. If you want to be poor, you can do it by chasing your schemes. If you want to have plenty and be able to share, work. Laziness is considered a sin to God. And the same idea is expressed in the New Testament. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll be in the New Testament for a while now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. So Paul is teaching the church. And you're going to see he teaches this in all the churches, even though we don't have all of the passages in the New Testament that indicate it. He said that he teaches those kinds of things everywhere. But we're going to see it very clearly taught here. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says... Uh, for, verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So if you're already doing that, stick with it. Don't look around and see people who are just, you know, living off someone else constantly and just being a busybody and disobedient and, and undisciplined. Don't, don't be that way. Don't, be, don't grow weary in doing good. The Lord has already ordained that you should be working hard. And when you're doing it, you're doing the right thing. Even though it doesn't seem like perhaps things are going like you would hope they would, it is precisely where the Lord wants you. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. It's a very clear instruction, isn't it? Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So you're not looking at him like he is unredeemed and perhaps antagonistic to you. You're just looking at him as a brother who's being disobedient. And by your, your interaction with him and lack of it, you're indicating precisely what the problem is and you are able to have some instruction. So principle number seven as it relates to work. Not working hard can lead to an undisciplined life. Very straightforward. And as a footnote, and as you think about this from a policy perspective, if a government is creating a situation where it allows an able-bodied person to stay home and not work, like the Obama administration did for eight straight years, an increase of welfare by 41% more than any other presidents combined before him, so you're creating this environment where more and more people can stay home who are able-bodied. When that happens, it creates an environment ripe for unrest and sinfulness and an unruly and an unmanageable people. 
And we don't even need an illustration, do we? People who can afford to travel around and make trouble because they're living off of someone else, a lot of someone else's, is a big problem for a society. And that's a serious issue. And that's exactly what verse 11 says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Unneeded welfare, very clear, unneeded welfare, because there are some who need it, and I'm not against it, and I'm more than willing to pay for that. I, I have no problems with any of that, and on top of that, to give to those who have need out of our own personal resources, which that's something the Lord commands us to do too. Not only are they able to get what they need from our government through our taxes, but from us too. And if any organization knows how to do that well, it's the church. The church knows precisely how to use those funds in the best possible way for the maximum benefit. But because there is benefit, there may be people who need it, absolutely they should have it. So I, I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to be say anything the scripture doesn't say. But unneeded welfare, rewarding someone for not working, removes everything we just saw. Order from society, it, it produces laziness, it produces chaos, and all kinds of sinful pastimes. And we see that over and over in every, every practically every major inner city in our nation. Work is the primary way that God has established for people to acquire material things. And if we work and we manage it like God has prescribed, we'll have what we need. And if we don't work, we won't have what we need. And God's plan is not to harm people. God's plan is not unkind, but to make us productive and allow us to live satisfying lives because we're doing what he asks us to do. And again, and there's much satisfaction when you obey the Lord, and you know this in every other area of your life, right? It's no different here. And the best policy, again, as you think about a country, the best policy you can have to promote social order is to keep the maximum amount of resources in the hands of those who know how to use it. Number one, on the one hand, letting those who labor keep as much of their wage as possible so they can spend and share and generate work. And on the other hand, provide an environment conducive to those that employ, so lower corporate taxes, reduced regulation, so that people can have jobs. And that just makes sense. Beloved, as it aligns with the biblical worldview, the Lord wants us to work, and if He wants us to work, then we don't want to generate by excessively taxing at a higher and higher rate so that more and more people who could work don't. That's insane. And then regulating the people who do provide work places for people to provide employment out of business. What kind of insanity is this? See, that doesn't line up with biblical principles. And I'm just being, just trying to apply what we know here to what we are going to see in this next election. Be clear. You're promoting more and more welfare. You're just promoting more and more what we see every single night now in every practically every city. Because you can travel around if you don't have to go to, to work. You can do lots of all kinds of harm. You know, and, and biblically, the worst thing a country could do, just taxing people at an ever-increasing level in order to pass it off on people, pass it off to people who will not work. That's a fruitless endeavor. And just increases the problems and is super counterproductive. But you will hear the liberal side of our government yelling so loudly as if they're righteous and saying, oh, we just need more. How could you be so cold-hearted? The Lord's not unkind in his, in his commands, is he? He knows what's good for people. And he's given us a very clear instruction here. And, and again, as you know, there are people who can't work or who work and in the work can't provide all of their needs. Maybe it's a single mom or a single dad or, or someone who's disabled. I, I get that. I, we're not against that. I, I'm not. 
the, the scripture is very clear about providing those who, providing for those who are poor and providing for those who, who have need and can't work, but it would never endorse giving it to someone who can work and could make gainful employment, but don't, and will not, see. So, they should be provided for, absolutely, not, not saying that we shouldn't. And again, that is God's will, and He's expressed it over and over again. In, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says to his son in the faith, if anyone does not provide for his own, now catch how serious this is. You don't provide for your own, especially for those of his household. He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's right out of the New Testament, beloved. That's to churches just like ours and churches like ours around the world. Okay? That is not good company to be in. And that's principle number eight as it relates to work. Not working hard is a terrible testimony for the believer. Terrible. But on the other side, to embrace the biblical view of economics... Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. This is a great passage. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. So that slave-master relationship, and again, that's just a really hot topic right now. And, and you know, I think that our, our resounding statement that we were against slavery was the destruction of 650,000 lives in a president in the Civil War. And half of our nation ruined an establishment of a new party anti-slavery party that said, we are not going to accept this, okay? Get, get this. I get that. That's, that's a terrible thing. This is not that. Slavery in the scripture is not the kind of slavery that was around and perhaps, and was going on in other nations, including Africa, well before America's time, okay? Slavery in the Bible provided a place for someone to go. If they had fallen on hard times, they could work their way out of poverty, have a home to live in, food to eat, and get to the point where they could be on their own. And the Bible established it that way. So don't, don't cast it in the same light as this. Okay. I hear a lot of, a lot of people who have no idea what they're talking about say, well, the Bible condones slavery. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's what you want to say, but it's not worth getting in a shouting match because it's like you're shouting against a jet engine. So it is what it is. So here, though, there's this, there's this employee employer relationship that's being spoken of here. Slaves and all things obey those who are your masters on earth. And that just goes without saying, right? Because there's lines of authority and you come up under somebody just like everybody does. Not with external service as those merely pleasing men. So not just doing it when they're looking, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So in other words, you're working hard, you're, you're, you're providing you know, a, a good service, a day's work for a day's pay, that kind of thing. Good conscience, that kind of stuff. Just as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord because we work for him. Whoever, you, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Why? Because that's the reality. You are working for men, but if you're working for the Lord foremost, everything you do for someone who is your employer is going to be set more than satisfactory. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. So the Lord has something in store for you who work hard, and you're not going to see it here. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of his wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So principle number nine as it relates to work. Hard work, working with integrity, no matter what the task, will receive great honor. And that's, that's true of any job. If you are a believer, you work hard because above all of these other things, Jesus is the one who you ultimately reward, who will reward you for doing it and reprove you for not doing it. He's the one who's watching ultimately and work is important to him. And if you work uh, with that as your guide, you're going to do well. 
Now, that's obviously not all we can say about that topic of work, but I think it'll suffice because we're going to run out of time and I'm not going to get to the other things I want to talk about. But considering the second topic is directly related to it, as you'll see, the second very tangible way that the scripture teaches us to accumulate wealth is through savings. It's through savings. One of the ways God provides resources for us for the future is through saving. And of course, that's connected to work because if you're not bringing anything in, there's no way you're going to be able to save anything. So it's, that's why I put that at the bottom and everything kind of builds on that. So savings is the way the Lord does that. And there are plenty of illustrations on this topic. And we're going to, this one will be sh shortened considerably because work was the most important. And there are lots of illustrations, but as our habit, we're going to look at a few of them and put some principles uh, there from the passages that you can use. All these are spiritual instructions, again, for material things. Look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. And, and again, if you're getting tired of that, we can, uh, we can, uh, you can just hear it. I'll, I'll read it to you. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. That's an important principle to consider. Very simple. Of course, if you're wise, you understand the value of working hard. If you're wise, you understand the value of diligent labor and what that produces. And you bring your brain to, to bear on that. And you realize that the Lord's watching and you ultimately serve him. So there's a lot of things that are lumped in with wisdom. But the fact of the matter is, principle number one, as it relates to saving, like with hard work, saving is equated with wisdom. There's precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Someone who knows what they're supposed to do and does it is wise. But a foolish man swallows it up. So a foolish person, here it is, consumes everything they get. And we talked about that the very first time we began to talk about this, uh, this financial, these financial issues. The average person in the U.S. in 2019 spent $1.30 for every dollar they, they made. That gives, that gives me heartburn and I'm not doing that to think about the danger that they are in in a very short time. But a foolish person consumes everything they get. A, a wise person sets some, some aside. Uh, some of their treasure, some of their oil, whatever they produce, whatever they bring in. See, and so it has a direct application for today. The foolish person lives at the maximum level all the time. So you get a raise and you immediately bring up the spending to that raise. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to have nice things. But you wouldn't have anything if the Lord didn't give it to you. And and First Timothy chapter 6 says, those who are wealthy in this age be rich in good works and ready to share. There's, there's nothing wrong with those things. And the Lord has already said to his people in the Old Testament, you may have some of those things. He's going to give it in the sovereignty. But the fact of the matter is, it's a direct application. A foolish person lives at the maximum level all the time, using up everything that comes in. Remember the ant in, in uh, Proverbs 6, verse 6? Go to the ant, sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Having no chief, no officer, prepares her fruit in the summer and gathers provision in the harvest. Because she knows the winter is coming. What's that mean? Setting some aside to live on for later. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 25. The ants are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. Purpose number two is it relates to savings. Savings allows us to be prepared for the future, just obviously. And the simple ant makes the illustration here. They know the winter is coming. They store up for the extra for the winter. And the analogy is, you know, save for a downtime. That's the idea. You know, save for a time when you can't do what you once did. Save for a time when you're ill. Or save for a time when you have an opportunity to help someone who's having a difficult time. Uh, or a time when you have an opportunity to advance the kingdom effort. Save for a time uh, that you can do any of those things. It's simply this. Wisdom is equated with someone who saves, which means they don't consume everything that comes in. So if you're going to do something, stop consuming every possible dollar that comes into your door. And set some aside. Some aside. And maybe you've financially obligated yourself so that every 
possible scent is used, then you need to what? Scale back your living. Now, there's ways to do this that, of course, saving that doesn't honor the Lord, and we talked about this before, this whole idea of retirement as the goal of life. Watch any major sporting events, that is the predominant, that is the predominant advertisement. It is axiomatic. You must save for your retirement. Do you have enough? Are you going to outlive with your, reti- your retirement? The whole thing puts fear in the heart of everybody. Uh, somehow, I'm not going to have what I need. See, and the idea of having this large amount of resource stashed away as early as possible in order to do as little as possible for as long as possible. That's kind of how you can sum up the retirement that the world pushes at you. Having a goal of life to get into position so we don't have to do anything or anything we don't want to do. And, and we've seen how... We're already pretty self-absorbed as it is with what we bring in, and now we're taking the little bit left that the Lord has given us, and we want to sock that away to be completely self-absorbed in our later years. And that doesn't fit into any kind of biblical principle that I can see. And I think you can see that. Doing what you want when you want all the time. That, that's not in line with kingdom purposes, or at least any that we've looked at so far. So you don't want to stockpile more and more of what could be and should be used in investing in eternity money belts that don't wear out. However... Scripture does encourage us to plan for the future, and that equates with wisdom. So it's not wrong to be ready for the future, to be ready for a time you can't do what you used to do, but not so that you can just do whatever you want to do forever. And and Scripture tells us that we were made to work, and that doesn't stop when you're retired. You still have things that you can do. So there's a lot, uh, there, there has to be a way to do both of these things, to save for the future, but still be in line with what the Lord says to do and bring glory to Him. So if you're able to cease working for the world and you don't need to make a living, then, beloved, you should plan to spend your time working for the kingdom at least as hard as you worked for the world. And and planning for the future and saving could include things like this. You know, savings accounts, health insurance, life insurance, short-term disability, investing in a combination of those together, beloved. That's all part of saving for the future. It's all part of saving for an unknown time where the Lord may take you to opportunities you didn't know you were going to get to have or bring you through difficult times where you will need to have some to help support you during that time. So work is God's primary way to allow us to acquire what we need. Savings is another way God endorses to provide what we need. They're both equated with wisdom, and to disregard this biblical teaching is equated with foolishness and sinfulness. So let's look at this third very tangible way that the Scripture teaches us to accumulate wealth, and that is through planning. Uh, Proverbs chapter 27 is where we're going to be. Verse 23, it's a very instructive verse. Maybe you might, you might want to turn there, and perhaps you've not read this passage, but um, I've got part of it up there, and I want you to read, uh, I'd like you to read with me. Proverbs 23, 27, verse 23. There's two very instructive passages. This is one of them. There's going to be one out of Ecclesiastes, and I want you to hear it because, again, it, there's some well-meaning but wrong teachers of the Word of God which... Uh, tell opposite of the things the word actually says. But look at Proverbs 23, verse 27, verse 23. It says this, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. That sounds like planning, doesn't it? And again, it's leading an agrarian example, but it applies very broadly. Verse 24, For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Verse 25, When the grass disappears and new growth is seen and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will be for your clothing, and the goats will bring the price of a field. Verse 27, and there will be goat's milk enough for your food and for the food of your household and sustenance for your maidens. Now, if we just want to boil that down and get to where we need to be, here's how it relates to planning. Planning helps you avoid the impulsive handling of family resources. 
Planning helps you avoid the impossible, the impulsive handling of finance, uh, family's resources. You know, it's just buying something because you decide now you want it. Okay? We're supposed to plan. Know the condition of your flock. Pay attention to your herds. Riches are not forever. You may have a lot now. You may not have a lot later. Why? Because the Lord owns it all. He may determine that there's going to be a time where you're going to be lean. And a crown doesn't endure to all generations. Just because you're right at the top of the pile now doesn't mean you always will be. But some things are for sure going to happen. The grass is going to disappear and there'll be a winter and then new growth will come back and herbs of the mountains are gathered in and there'll be some things that you can do and, and the lambs will be for your clothing and the goats for the price of a field because why? Because you were planning and there's some things there that are in place, not right now, but will be in place later perhaps that will take care of your needs. Careful planning takes the abundance that comes in from the Lord and it all comes from him. Of course, nothing comes that you haven't got from the Lord. Flocks, herds, riches, crowns. It uses good stewardship to provide for the future because it saves spending less than you make each month. That old adage, if your output exceeds your inflow, your upkeep will be your downfall. Okay, If your output exceeds your inflow, your upkeep will be your downfall. Always. But you can control that by planning. And you can control that by saving and you'll enjoy the fruits of what God so abundantly gives to you, whether great or small. No matter what level God provides, this applies. And, and this will probably include some carefully thought out budget decisions if you're very slim and you know exactly how you need to spend that to make sure you're doing the things the Lord has said and you're not spending the maximum that comes in every single day. If you're not on a tight income, then it may mean setting up some priorities of things that you want to do with that extra. And either of those things will inhibit the impulsive use of your family's resources and the whatever works mentality that kind of goes along with most family budgets. Because we need to be aware that there, uh, this is something you're going to battle against all the time. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. If it's just a whatever works kind of mentality, then you you're never satisfied and you're going to go, you know, you're going to go on Amazon and you're going to look at something and one minute later when you're on Facebook, it's going to be right there in an advertisement. The world knows precisely how to capitalize on you looking at something you might want to have. You know that if I go look at a guitar at Guitar Center and then I go on Facebook, I'll have a bunch of guitars from Guitar Center going there like three or four pictures I can swipe through and you know how that works. So, you know, we live in a society where Sheol and abandoned, uh, the grave, it's never satisfied. There's always, there's always room for more. And the eyes of men are never satisfied. There's always room for more. And that society we live in really capitalizes on that and impulsive sales. It's going to gobble up your money and advertising commercials and all that. Where you place items in the store while you're there with your kids, that's not an accident. And those are things that they want and they're right by the checkout aisle. And you wonder why you're having trouble getting your kids to come through there because everything they want is right there at arm's reach when they're sitting in the basket. Not coincidence. Okay. So, you know, it presses us to indulge in every imaginable thing and then will offer you a credit card so you don't feel the sting of the purchase when you don't have the money to spend. So that's a bad combination. And without planning, you're in trouble. You have to have a thought-out plan that helps you avoid those pitfalls. So that principle number two is it relates to planning as with working saving. Planning is equated with wisdom and failing to plan is equated with foolishness. Proverbs 27, verse 21. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, each is tested by the praise according him. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from it. It just means if you have this 
habit of whatever works with your money. And you're just kind of open to whatever you want to do. You're always going to be in trouble. And that's a super hard habit to break because doing that, not planning, is equated with foolishness. And foolishness is hard to separate from someone. And, and that's what the, the verse says. You know, you, you, you heat up silver and you heat up, you heat up silver ore and, and, and the, and the minerals that have gold in it. And you can purge it out and, and you pound, uh, crushed grain in a mortar and pestle and you can get what you need. But you do both with a fool and you can't separate the foolish from them. It's super hard to change bad habits and you have to be diligent about it. People will make foolish mistakes with their money over and over again and then pile up debt. You know, they'll take a, a consolidation card and they'll start paying it down and then just pile up debt again over and over. You, you gotta somehow break that pass it, that, that, that type of process and you do that by doing these kinds of things. It's gonna have, to have the fruit of self-control as a primary fruit that you're relying on. For some number three as it relates to planning. Failing to plan presumes on God's grace. Failing to plan presumes on God's grace. And that, that principle is really just extrapolated from what we know about God's word. And I want to parse that out a little bit because I don't want you to um, think, well, where's he coming? Where's he getting that? But I want you to mark that principle number three. It is very important. And if you don't remember anything that we said today, remember this. Failing to plan or to save or to work, mark this, it presumes on God's patience and his grace, here it is, in hoping that he will overlook your sinfulness and irresponsibility or self-centeredness or foolishness or a combination of those things and hoping that he will continue to bless you and bail you out of the mess you place yourself in over and over and over again. See, it presumes on God's grace. And spending more than you make each month with credit cards, mark this, beloved, it's no other thing but this. It presumes on God because you're spending something he hasn't given to you yet. You've already spent the income that you were going to take in next month or, depending on how far ahead you are, next year. And now you're presuming on God and saying, okay, well, I'll still have my job tomorrow or I'll have it next month or I'll have it you know, two months from now. And you know what? During the COVID virus, a lot of people got themselves in big trouble that way because they thought everything was just going to go. A lot of believers got themselves in big trouble that way because they just thought they could continue to presume on God's grace and he'd continue to provide what you need uh, without ever thinking perhaps you might want to scale that back. And so again, these are, you might be there and I'm not trying to make you feel badly. I just want you to see where you are and then next time we're together, we're going to see how we can fix that. Because it can be fixed. Because as soon as you put God in the middle of that, and you start doing what he wants you to do, things change rapidly in that. Because he owns everything, and he gives it to whomever he wants, however he wants to do it. But he's waiting for your heart to be in line with what he wants you to do. Proverbs 19, verse 13, speaks to this in our context. You know, disobeying clear instruction. You know, this, this presumptuous type of sin. It says, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I'll be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So in order to keep track, uh, keep us back from presuming on God, you need to carefully plan, work hard, save some of what comes in, and spend less than they make. And, and as we think about God's commands, there's all kinds of things that we hear. And Proverbs 19, verse 7 is very clear. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's very clear. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. And everything that he says makes the wise simple. See? And what he says is more desirable than gold and fine gold. Is that desirable? Of course it is. 
and sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb, right? And so those things are desirable, but more desirable still is managing your life like he's commanded you to do it and doing your life that way is sweet, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, see? And more desired uh, than that. And moreover, by them your servant is warned, keeping them there is great reward. You're going to enjoy what God so abundantly and generously gives and you'll be able to enjoy giving like that and be like him in that way when you do it. So beware of not planning and just consuming on what God gives you. It presumes on God. And when we continue to do that, we can easily get ourselves in a situation where we have to demand God to rescue us from a situation after situation after situation. And we're out of time. and I'm going to have to stop. But, um, uh, you know, when we do that, it, it keeps us from being able to help someone out financially. When, when we do that, it keeps us from being able to support the local church. When we do that, and I hear that a lot, we, we would give, but we, we just can't afford to do that. And I, and I think about the passage we read just a little bit ago about tithes and offerings and how we rob God and not everything that you have is supposed to be used for you. And yet you're just consuming everything plus some, see? And so it keeps you out of that way the Lord can bless you. It keeps you, it, get, it keeps you from getting involved with supporting missions. It keeps you from getting involved from going on a mission trip or to serve somewhere because you're trapped by too much financial obligation. That happens all the time to believers. Don't let it happen to you. So these are some places where we're going to, uh, we're going to extrapolate a little bit. Next time we're going to talk about investments. Oh, it's a way God has, has ordained for us to, uh, to have something. And you're thinking investments, oh, that's, that's gambling. No, it's not. And I, a lot of male, well-meaning but incorrect uh, teachers of the word have said that. Uh, the Bible is very clear about all that. It has a number of passages that talk about it. Yes, there is, well, there's risk involved. Yes. Isn't there risk involved in every single thing? What about the unredeemed? Aren't they at risk every single day that the Lord will return? If you think there's been a bear market before, wait till all the believers are taken away. So, beloved, there's a lot of things that we can talk about, and we'll look at it next time, But and I hate stopping in the middle because I wanted to wrap up in a certain way, but you understand. It's just the way that that goes, all right? So let's um, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. I love you guys, and, and my desire really is to just establish some, some baseline, a biblical understanding of how things come to you and what you can do to get out of the cycle perhaps that you're in. And it's my joy to see you live in a victorious life in this way as with every other spiritual issue because that's what it is. It's a spiritual issue, and we can get on top of that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful today for uh, the blessing of fellowship, for the blessing of singing together and proclaiming your your goodness and your, attrib- your other attributes, your faithfulness and and uh, your justice. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that our hearts are drawn to that and that we're more keen to do it uh, after we finish than we were when we started. And we thank you today that we can give and do that as part of our worship, recognizing as we give our offerings that you've given us everything. It really indicates where our heart is. So I pray that you'll continue to uh, prompt us to do that in a way that's honoring to you. And Father, I thank you for the time in the Word. And Lord, I thank you even for the hard passages like this one, difficult things to say because you know that the way the culture is and the way even the church is, that it's going to be hard to hear. It's going to be convicting. And Lord, I pray that by your grace, you not only do you examine us and show the faulty parts, but you give your word so that we know how to fix those things volitionally that we're doing and that we know that you are faithful as we show ourselves attuned to what you say, to change us 
and then change the situation we're in. And so, Lord, that's my prayer today. Thank you for these folks, for those who are listening other places. Pray your blessing on them as we begin to open up more in fellowship together. Lord, bring us back. Lord, as many are going to go out on vacation over the last next several weeks, perhaps a month or so, traveling mercies to them. May they be faithful witnesses wherever they go. Lord, I pray that you bring peace to your nation Israel. I pray that you bring peace to the U.S., that you'll reestablish the rule of law which you have established and ordained as part of what culture is supposed to do, societies are supposed to be uh, governed. I pray that you will allow us to have healing. I pray that we'll do our part as a church to bring about that kind of healing, but not by capitulating, but by speaking the truth in love. Always the truth, with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how to answer each one. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. For his sake, we do all that we do. We look forward to seeing him, and we wait on his return. Help us be found faithful in the meantime. And all God's people said, Amen.